number 134, 134. 134, Lord Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, my rock and my fortress, my surety divine, my gracious redeemer, my song shall be now, tis thou who art worthy, Lord Jesus, tis thou. 134, just remaining seated.
couple of verses of 206 in before we start the second half of the conference proper. 206, O Lord, thy love's unbounded, so sweet, so full, so free, my soul is all transported whene'er I think of thee. Yet, Lord, alas, what weakness within myself I find. No infant's changing pleasure is like my wandering mind. 206. We'll sing the first and last verses. this evening and we hope that the time that we'll spend under God's word will be a blessing to all of us. We'll start the session by singing the words of hymn number 239, hymn number 239, sorry hymn, hymn number 249, hymn number 249, Sovereign grace or sin abounding, ransom souls the tidings well, tis a deep that knows no sounding, who its breadth or length can tell. On its glories, let my soul forever dwell. We'll sing the whole of 249 and we'll stand after the introduction on the organ.
like to give the program out for the remainder of the service. Uh, I would, we would just have an opening word of prayer and then our dear brother David will come and speak to us. And after that we'll have a hymn and then brother Douglas will come and speak to us. So we just submit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank Thee once again for this time which we can spend in Thy presence. We thank Thee, Father, that we are privileged enough to come under the sound of Thy Word. We thank Thee, Father, for all this that is possible because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We think, Father, of our state, lost in sin. Thy Word would remind us that we were made from the dust of the earth and we would go back there. The psalmist would remind us, Father, that all our days are like the flower of the field. The wind will blow and the place thereof will know it no more. But yet, Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast thought of us so highly, mm -hmm. that Thou sent thy, thy only begotten Son to die on the cross for us. We thank Thee, Father, for the Savior who came, knowing what He was going to go through. But yet, Father, He went through it and He gave His life for us on the cross of Calvary. And so, Father, we thank Thee for the Savior. We thank Thee, Father, for Thy Word. We thank Thee, Father, for the guidance that it gives us, the knowledge that it provides us as we make our journey through this pilgrim land. And we pray, Father, that Thou may help us, that as we learn from it, that we may be able to apply it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We pray, Father, for the brethren who are here, who have given up their time to come and speak to us and teach us, Father. And we pray that Thou may bless, bless them both and bless us as well for the word that they give us. And so, Father, we bring this meeting once again in thy presence and we ask for help. In the name of the Saviour. Amen. Amen. I just ask our dear brother David to come and speak to us. Uh, good evening. Uh, it's good to see all who have remained. Uh, we always appreciate, appreciate that later in the day to see uh, a number still here uh, to listen to the Word of God, so we appreciate that very much. Uh, we're going to read in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 119. Uh, don't fret, we're not going to read the whole Psalm. Psalm 119, and uh, we'll break in at verse number 97. Psalm 119, verse 97, and the psalmist says, O how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. That's all we want to read, we look for the Lord to bless it to us tonight. The, the psalmist in Psalm 119 has written a, a long poem. In fact, it is, as most will know, the longest, the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, 176 verses long. Someone has said that this long poem is a love poem, and that is undoubtedly true. Uh, and yet the psalmist is not writing this love poem to his wife, or his girlfriend, or his children, or his mother, but rather, this, the psalmist, he is writing this love poem and he is expressing in this poem his love for the Word of God. 
He says on at least eight occasions in the psalm that he loves God's word. You know, sometimes we speak to people and they say they love the Lord. And every Christian should and does love the Lord. Uh, There are not so many people that we speak to who say that they love the word. For those of us who uh, study the word of God, uh, likely many who are here tonight, there is on occasion that which rises up within us of deep appreciation at the wonder which is the word of God. The hymn writer, uh, he obviously was in the same frame of mind as the psalmist uh, when he wrote the words, O wonderful, wonderful word of the Lord. True wisdom, its pages unfold, and though we may read them a thousand times over, they never, no, never grow old. Now I want to ask you again tonight, we asked it in the earlier section of the meeting, but I want to really try as best as I can to impress this upon all who have gathered. I want you to ask yourself the question, what do the scriptures mean to you? Can you say honestly that you love the word of God? Said the psalmist, oh how love I thy love. Of course as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ I think we all recognize at least to some degree the the truths that we mentioned in the earlier uh, session of, of the conference That the Bible is the word of God. That God is the great creator of the universe. And that therefore the Bible is extremely important. And yet, very often what we know theoretically is not always what we show practically. For example, uh, often we view scripture reading uh, as a, a dispensable part of life. Something we can do if we can fit it in. Uh, Something we don't do if we we can't fit it in that particular day. Now what what I want us to do just uh, for the first uh, half of the session tonight really is is just to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to see that he gives to us the, the proper view that we should have. Of scripture. You know, often we look at the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and we think of, uh, we, we, we worship him and we wonder at his glory and we wonder at his grace and we should do all of those things. And yet, as well as that, we need to remember that in many different ways he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. For example, we are to inculcate, says Paul in Philippians chapter 2, the mind of Christ. That is, we should think in the same way as Christ thinks about certain things. We should value what he values. We are to imitate him. And so in light of that, what we want to consider uh, this evening is, is Christ and the word of God. What was his attitude to the scriptures? How did he use the scriptures? Uh, And hopefully that will help us in respect of our attitude to the word of God as well. Now what I'm going to do uh, 
this evening is I'm going to refer to different passages of scripture just as we go through. It, it might have been too long and a little too confusing to read them all before the meeting uh, commenced. So what we're going to do is just as I go through uh, this evening, we're going to refer to different passages. You don't need to turn to them, although I'll give you the reference for them as we go through. Uh, first of all, the first reference I want us to think about is in Isaiah chapter 50. And uh, what we're going to learn here is the Lord's instruction from the Word. In Isaiah 50, uh, the, the, the perfect servant of Jehovah is being considered. And we read in verse number 4 and 5, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned back. Now here in this section of Isaiah, we have tremendous insight into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on this earth. He is speaking as a servant. And he says that he receives instruction from the Lord God. And he knows how to speak a word in season. But notice just with me how this instruction is communicated. First of all, it is daily. He wakeneth my ear morning by morning. Here is the ongoing daily awakening of the Lord to spend time in the presence of God his Father. Now apparently the picture is drawn from teachers in that day who would uh, must have lived in close proximity to their pupils and they would have woken them up to begin the day's instruction. Now uh, as we think about that then we can just compare that with one or two occasions in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember that we read in uh, Mark's Gospel how that a great while before day he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And there he is in communion with the Father and there he received daily instruction. Now, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus knew all things. And we're not challenging that for a moment. This is the mystery of the incarnation. In some sense, beyond our understanding, the Lord was a recipient of instruction. And this instruction came from God, and it was God's word in which the path for the Lord was so clearly marked out and so it was from this word that instruction for the path was received and this is confirmed time and time again when the Lord Jesus Christ was here in scripture in the world sorry because uh, if you remember just as an example the occasion of his betrayal and his arrest and uh, Peter he takes his sword out he's going to defend the Lord and the Lord says to him Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But 
How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. And so what we're discovering is this. The Lord Jesus Christ was instructed by the word. He was guided by the word. He was submissive to the word. Think again of the Lord Jesus on the cross in John's Gospel chapter 19. And there we read Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. That the scripture might be fulfilled saith I thirst. So even in the midst of the extremity of Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely committed to the instruction of the word of God. And what we need to ask ourselves then is this. Are we so committed to the instruction of God's word? Speaking of myself, very honestly, it is times of severe pressure that makes me less willing to submit to the word of God. And yet the Lord Jesus, in the midst of the most severe of pressure, all that he did was in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here in Isaiah chapter 50, he goes on, he says, I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. So even though the pathway before him was a path of suffering, he was obedient, said Paul in Philippians chapter 2, right on to death, even the death of the cross. And so instruction and obedience, they're, they're linked together in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That as, as James mentioned, and I mentioned it earlier, quoting him, he said, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. F.C. Jennings, in his uh, commentary on Isaiah, he, he notes a thing just that's quite beautiful here. He said, See then that perfect servant reading, pondering, meditating upon the word of God. And as a disciple, as all who are really taught of God, he listens to the living voice that may be heard in those inspired pages. So he was instructed by the word then we come to the gospel of Matthew chapter 4 and that's our second section that we look at briefly in Matthew's gospel chapter 4 we're going to think about his temptation and the word you know in Matthew 4 and in the, the, the different synoptic gospels we have the record of the temptation of the Lord Jesus in verse 3 of chapter 4 Matthew says when the tempter came to him he said if thou be the son of God command that these stones be made bread but he answered and said it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God and you'll know that there were a number of temptations three in total that were brought before the Lord on this occasion and the Lord answered on each occasion with the words it is written now again all of us are aware that the Lord Jesus was God manifest in flesh and by virtue of that fact there was no danger of him falling. He was impeccable. He could not sin. We know as well that he was omnipotent. He had the power to destroy the devil in a moment. And yet, that was not how he responded 
to the temptation. He left us an example that we should follow his steps. And what he did was this. He said, it is written. You see, the the tempter, the first occasion we have the tempter in the Bible, of course, is in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, the tempter comes to Eve and says, Hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And in this question, he's challenging the word of God. He's undermining the confidence that Eve has in the character of God. And Eve is swayed. And Eve is, uh, is stumbling. And uh, what she does is this. She subtracts a little from God's word in her reply. She adds a little to God's word in her reply. And she misquotes God's word in her reply. But the Lord Jesus gives us the proper way to respond to the tempter. And to do that we need to ensure that we know the word of God. And that we maintain full confidence in the word of God. And we respond as the Lord Jesus Christ did. It is written. It is written. It is written. You know, um, Douglas earlier mentioned the importance of... uh, Daily reading. Um, And I think it is interesting just to see that the three quotations that the Lord Jesus made in Matthew chapter 4 during the temptation, the the three quotations are from the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, two of them are found in chapter 6 and one of them is found in chapter 8. And as someone has pointed out, it is certainly possible that the Lord's reading that morning had been in the book of Deuteronomy and instructed in the word and knowing the word he speaks forth the word which is appropriate to the circumstance of that day. It's an important thing to, uh, to imbibe the word of God regularly. In Psalm number 40 where we read about the Lord coming into the world Uh, We read, Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And in Psalm 119 where we've read, uh, it tells us there in verse number 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. So for us to... To know the word of God in the occasion of temptation. It's important for us to be regularly reading the word of God. To be memorizing the word of God. To be imbibing the word of God. Let it be the food that we eat day after day. And when the temptation comes. There will be brought to our memory. What is needed from the word of God. Another point we want to make is found in Psalm number 1. Psalm number 1 brings before us the Lord's meditation on the Word. Now, uh, we can look at this in a general way as the godly man and the ungodly man in uh, Genesis chapter 1. I like to think that the godly man just perfectly uh, speaks to us of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, um, the first thing that we discover about the godly person is that they are separated from the world. He did not talk, he did not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, the point here is, as our brother was making earlier, it is not that he did not walk in company with ungodly people. It isn't that he didn't stand where sinners were. It isn't that he didn't sit in the company of sinners. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ did do all of those things. He was known as the friend of publicans and sinners. What he did not do is he did not imbibe their attitude. He did not imitate their ethic. He did not walk after their counsel. He didn't stand in their way. He didn't sit in their seat. You you, you see the point that's being made. He did not become like them. You know, I remember just uh, as a young lad, just just saved, I began to read through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I just, it thrilled me. And I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and there are many things I've forgotten that I enjoyed when I read through the Gospel of Luke. But there is one thing that impressed itself upon me about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is this. He came as close to people as it was possible for him to come. And yet he remained as distinct from people, morally, as it was possible for him to be. So, he had this separation from the world. And the reason, well, for the godly man, the reason why this can be maintained uh, is given to us in verse number 2 he was satisfied with the word so rather than the influences which were without uh, coming upon a person we discover that the godly person their delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law they meditate day and night and so the source of satisfaction for the Lord in this world was the word of God. In the scriptures he meditated day and night. Now this word to meditate it means to muse upon. It means to ponder. It involves us actively thinking. Considering. Allowing our mind to assess the value of each statement that we read. The meaning of the statement and it, it, it's that which really follows our reading and follows our study and memorization and so on and uh, it precedes the, the, the application of the word of God to our life we're meditating upon the word we are making it our own it is becoming part of the fabric of who we are it's being written into our DNA the word of God 
And what's the result when a person does that? Well, verse number three, that person is successful in his walk. A person who ponders the word of God, allows its message to read into his, reach into his heart and life, he's going to be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So here's, here's the question. Do you want stability in your Christian walk? Do you want to have a spiritual vitality in your life? Do you want to be fruitful, Christ-like in your life? Do you want to have a consistent testimony before others in the world? Do you want to succeed as a Christian? Then you need to meditate. You need to spend time considering the word of God. This is the walk of the godly man. It's beautifully illustrated for us in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So having been instructed in the word and knowing the word and meditating on the word. All of these things Show us the, the, the kind of appreciation that the Lord Jesus Christ had for the word. Another thing we learn is in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. And uh, there we read about his, his conversation about the word. Uh, that's in Luke chapter 2 verse number 46. It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple. Sitting... In the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So uh, the, the picture here is of a, a young boy, as we know, of 12 years of age. Uh, he's been left behind in Jerusalem when his parents have left and they've discovered that he's not in the company as they're travelling back to Nazareth. So they turn around, they come back to search for him. After three days of searching, they find him in the temple. And there he is, he is seated among the doctors. Now that word really means uh, the, the masters or the instructors or the teachers, if you like. So the Lord is sitting among the instructors of the Old Testament scriptures. This term teacher uh, was used often of the Lord Jesus Christ in later years. But here he's a young boy. And as a young boy he is found where the teachers of the law are gathered together. So here he sits. He's in the midst of the teachers. What's he doing? He is both hearing them. And asking questions. He, he's interacting with them. He is conversing about the word of God. In one sense he appears as a pupil with teachers. He is hearing and he is asking. And yet when we read on what we discover is this. It goes on to say all that heard him were astonished at his understanding. And his answers. So, so he's speaking and answering as well as hearing and asking. You know in Psalm 119 again that, that love poem that we've mentioned. The psalmist says a couple of verses after the, the verse that we read at the beginning. He says I have more understanding 
than all my teachers. For thy testimonies are my meditation. Now, in time past, I I don't know whether this uh, is something that is done now or not, but in time past, if a person felt sick, they would have gone along to the doctor and uh, the doctor would have got them to stick out their tongue say, ah. And uh, the doctor would have had a look at their tongue and uh, the tongue would have been reckoned to be a good indicator of a person's physical health. Of course, when we come to the Bible, we discover that the tongue is a good indicator of a person's spiritual health. The subjects that we converse about say something about us. Um, According to James, we read, you remember in James chapter 3, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. And able also to bridle the whole body. Certainly the the subjects we have been thinking about are the subjects that we will speak about. I mean one of the tremendous blessings I have and I would encourage anyone to, to try to inculcate friendships with people that love the word of God. But one of the great uh, blessings that I have is this. I have a number of friends and I have a number of family members and the subject of their conversation is the Bible. Think carefully about your conversation for a minute or two. Ask yourself uh, what subjects you speak about. Do you spend your time running down the saints? Are you in the habit of uh, speaking about yourself all the time? You know, it is a good habit. If we can cultivate it to, to turn conversation to the scriptures. You know, um, I was out for coffee just a while ago and uh, there was a group of us there and around the table there were a lot of, well there was about eight or nine of us and I would say maybe six or seven of those that were there would actively be engaged in the ministry of the word and uh, the preaching of the gospel. And uh, yet as I sat there, I knew that a, a discussion could uh, come about which would be about the saints or about the assemblies. And I was kind of fearing that, to be honest. Uh, and yet, just as we all sat and the, 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 the conversation had kind of waned, it hadn't gone anywhere for a moment or two, there was one brother, a, a friend of mine, and he just piped up. He said, I have a question about the scriptures I'd like to ask. As a result, the remainder of our time, which was quite lengthy, the remainder of our time spent together was spent in profitable discussion about the word of God. Now, if you can cultivate this habit, you will have an impact for good upon the Lord's people. And it will impact you for good. Because it will not only mean that you're speaking about the scriptures, but it will mean that you're not speaking about others. So the scriptures were the subject of the Lord's conversation. We thought about instruction. We thought about meditation. We thought about the Lord in temptation. We thought about the Lord's conversation. I want to think just 
Those are all relative to the uh, personal life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just a little confused about the time. It's half past. You finish at half past. Okay, so I've been about 10 minutes or so. That's all right. That's all right. It just <laughs> was afraid I was going to mess that up completely. Okay, so we're moving on to the, the, the public aspect of the Lord's uh, use of the word of God. And when you come to uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, just at the commencement of it, the Lord, he, he returns to Capernaum, and the crowds, they gather around to hear him. And we read it was noised abroad that he was in the house. And uh, immediately many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. Now, so we have a crowd, a capacity crowd, an overcapacity crowd gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are interested in him because of miracles that he has performed in the past. So what did the Lord perceive to be the great need of the crowd? Was it the miraculous? No. Was it entertainment? No. The Lord Jesus assessed the spiritual need of those that were around him. And it says this. He preached the word unto them. So the subject of his preaching, a man who meditated upon the word, was instructed in the word, used the word in the the, the battles of life, um, conversed about the word uh, as he was growing up. The time came for him to preach publicly and what he proclaimed was the word. Again, Psalm number 40. Thy law is within my heart. He goes on to say, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his public ministry, he he, uh, communicated his absolute confidence in the word. And this was a feature that the apostles who uh, had been with the Lord Jesus Christ remembered and imitated. Um, In Acts chapter 8 we read of of, uh, Peter and John and they went to Samaria. And it says they testified and preached the word of the Lord there. We read of of Philip as he met the, the man... Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, he, he began at the same scripture and he preached unto him Jesus. Now, th- this is important because in the proclamation of the gospel and in all our gospel witness, whatever form that witness takes, at the forefront should be the word of God. Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, we've mentioned earlier that they received the word as it was in truth, the word of God. But it tells us before that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that uh, from that assembly sounded out the word of the Lord. You know, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ was here, uh, it's interesting just to consider the different conversations he had, the evangelistic conversations that he engaged in with people and other conversations as well and you'll discover if you look at them that on occasion he said such things as this 
Have ye not read? Or what is written in the law? How readest thou? And uh, what he was communicating to those that were questioning was this. He was communicating that there was an authority to the word of God. To which they should bow. We already talked about the authority of God's word earlier on. But just remember this. That there is an authority. And God has promised to bless his word. And if his word is authoritative. And illuminating. And life giving. And all of the things that we mentioned earlier. Then it should be at the forefront of our preaching. Now the, the Lord Jesus had a ministry of preaching. And teaching. And healing. Um, so I want to move on from the preaching for a minute to think about the teaching. And you come to Luke's Gospel and uh, chapter 24. Um, you remember there that on the road to Emmaus there were two very sad people walking. They were despondent, they were discouraged, depressed. Disillusioned, all of those words that uh, we would use to, to relate to people and their world has just crumbled beneath them or around them. So they needed some form of solid comfort and assurance. And uh, what we read in verse 27 is this, that the Lord beginning at Moses and all the prophets expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <coughs> Later on, uh, verse 32 we read that their response was this did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures now we, we need to see here then that the Lord he was expounding the word to these disciples and there's a number of, of features of this uh, Douglas has already mentioned some of them earlier and I'll just uh, briefly re-emphasize them because they're important the first thing we discover when the Lord is engaged in teaching is this. His teaching is biblical. He began at Moses and all the prophets. And he involved that which was in all the scriptures. He opened unto them the scriptures. Now, the Lord was himself God. And yet, at this point, he offers no fresh revelation. He doesn't give a piece of advice. He turns the minds of the disciples to the word of God. Now I don't think that there is, there is a more important exhortation for those of us who either preach the word or teach. Uh, that is that we should, we should base everything upon the scriptures. It is not good enough to add to them and make it sound as if our addition is in the scriptures. That's just not good enough. As far as uh, the word of God is concerned, our responsibility is to preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, and so on. Um, see, Paul, that's obviously from 2 Timothy, Paul, as the Lord Jesus Christ and as we mentioned in the earlier session, 
They were convinced about the sufficiency of scripture to meet the spiritual need of the people of God. I believe wholeheartedly in the value of devotional ministry. And I believe wholeheartedly in the value of practical ministry. And I believe wholeheartedly in the value of doctrinal ministry, if you like. Every sort of ministry. But what is important is this, that the basis of all ministry is the exposition of the word of God. Those who speak are but channels. That was mentioned, I think, in a hymn at the beginning. Channels only. Blessed Master. The word of God is transmitted through us. There is nothing that comes from us. We are stewards, if you like, of the mysteries of God. And it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And all that, all that is required of us is to honestly, openly, and for the good of those that are before us, take the word of God and explain it to those that are here. You know, teaching does not always need to be exciting. But it always needs to be biblical. It was accurate. These are things that have already been said earlier. Uh, tells us he explained thoroughly. He opened unto us the scriptures. He opened thoroughly the word of God and, and so on. It was Christ-centered. Uh, what he saw in the scriptures was himself. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was heartwarming. They said, did not our heart burn within us? Well, he talked with us. By the way. So we've thought of all of these different features. Publicly preaching. Publicly teaching. Finally John chapter 10. Just very very quickly. His, his conviction about the word. In verse number 35 of John chapter 10. Uh, the Lord Jesus states this. He says the scripture cannot be broken. Now this word broken it means to, to loosen and the, the, the thought is that the absolute authority and truthfulness of scripture cannot be weakened in any way. The Lord is sure of the truth of God's word. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5 he said verily I say unto you till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. In other words, every prophecy in Scripture, every statement that is made will have its fulfillment. Every precept in Scripture comes with divine authority. Every detail of God's Word is important. When earlier on we thought about the Word of God and thought about its authority, and thought about the fact that it illuminates the pathway for us, and thought of the boundaries that it gives uh, which are God given for our good. And thought about the fact that it was uh, life producing and sufficient. What we've tried to do now is just to see how the Lord Jesus appreciated the word. And how he utilised the word. And how he personally was instructed by the word. And how he communicated the word. And how he stressed the value that he personally placed upon the word of God. And so, just to apply what we've said. Just, just remember what the psalmist said. He said, oh 
How love I thy law? Here's the question. Do you read the word? Do you obey the word? Do you think about the word? Do you discuss the word? And for those of us who are engaged in any kind of public ministry whatsoever, do you preach the word? Do you teach the word? And does your life, as did the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, exude in all our interactions with others a quiet confidence in the word of God? I hope there's something in that that will be a benefit to those that have gathered. We thank Brother David for the challenging ministry. What an example we have of a submissive saviour. Not only submissive to the Father, but also submissive to to the Word. Before Brother Douglas comes to speak to us, we'll take time to sing hymn number 447. Hymn number 447. We'll sing verses 1 and 3 of number 447. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Teach me thy way. Thy gracious aid afford. Teach me thy way. We'll stand after the introduction in the organ. Revelation and reading in chapter 5. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5, we thought a little this afternoon about opening the book of grace 
We're going to think now about opening the book of government. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, we'll read the whole chapter, but we won't be dealing with the entire chapter uh, this evening. Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders <clears throat> said unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed, or hath overcome, to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odours, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue, and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honour, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honour, and glory, and power be unto him, that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts <coughs> saying, Come and see. Amen. <coughs> I just want to think uh, very simply this evening uh, about three things in this chapter. We're going to look first of all at the book. Uh, that occupies a central role. Uh, it's all about the book. Uh, but it does not occupy the central role because the central role is given to the one who has the right to open the book. We're going to think about the book and the one who has the right to open the book and then I want to, if you'll Allow me, I want to think about the actions of the 24 elders 
as representing the church. Now, if you don't believe the elders represent the church, just set that, park that at one side, because that will ruin my sermon. And uh, we want to see that the 24 elders are associated with the opening of the book of government in heaven. John is, uh, is entered in by the Spirit into the very throne room of heaven. And he finds it a very different place from what he might have expected. Brothers and sisters, I think heaven will be very different to any imaginations that you have and that I have. And John enters in by the Spirit. We're not going to deal with chapter 4, of course, but we're in chapter 5. And he's confronted with, first of all, a book that needs to be opened. We're going to think about the book. First one says that it is in the right hand. The margin says it's on the right hand. The idea here is that uh, I take it this is God sitting on the throne, God the Father, and he has in an open, outstretched hand a roll, a scroll. The book is on not just the hand, but the right hand. It's the hand of authority and power. And it is a book that is written within, writing inside and writing on the outside, and it is sealed with seven seals. Now we need to ask the question, what is this book? What a mystery. What is the book? Well, it's too late in the day to have a lecture on uh, the property laws of Israel. I think it is. But if you just bear with me a minute, and we'll go back to Jeremiah chapter 32. And you will remember in Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah is in the prison, and he's in Jerusalem, and the armies of uh, the king of Babylon are round about the city besieging Jerusalem. They've overrun the country, the capital is the last to fall, and uh, we know from our history in the Old Testament that in a year's time, the city is going to be broken up, and it's going to be completely overrun by the Babylonians. Now while he's sitting there in Jeremiah 32, the Lord says to him, Jeremiah, your cousin is going to come and he's going to try and sell you a field. Well, you know, if I'd been advising Jeremiah, I would say, now is not the time to buy. <laughs> don't, don't buy it. Uh, because Jeremiah knew that this city is going to be overrun. And he's going to lose it. What's the point of buying a field? It's a very bad investment. If you're buying a field and within a year, it's going to be under enemy occupation. God says to Jeremiah, when he offers you the field, you buy it. And so he does. There he is. Uh, Hanamiel comes in and says, I'd like you to buy my field. And Jeremiah says, let's do a deal. And they agree the price. And the interesting thing is that you get a little insight into how property was transacted in Israel. And the evidences of the purchase consist of an open book and a sealed book. And the evidence of the purchase is in the open book and it's in the sealed book. And the point is this, that the open book declares who has the right to the property, Jeremiah. But it's only when Jeremiah produces the sealed book and has the right to open it that he can take possession of that piece of ground. So Jeremiah says, here I am in the prison and I've got two scrolls in front of me. There's one open saying that I have the right to this land. And there's one sealed, and if I want to take possession of the land, 
I'm going to have to break the seals and that gives me possession. Now, within a year, it was all gone. But Jeremiah's scrolls weren't gone. And God says, I'll tell you this, there's going to come a day when they're going to inherit land in this country again. And when the Israelites came back from Babylon, I'd like to think, I'm not sure, I like to think some descendant perhaps of Jeremiah's, he's got the scroll. And he can come along and he can say, I have the right to open the scroll. And by doing so, this plot of ground has been under enemy occupation for years, but I have the right to reclaim it. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the background of this chapter. God has the right to this universe. Brothers and sisters, Christ has the right to this universe. He made it. He created it. We've heard of that today. But the universe has been overrun, overrun by evil. Not just our planet, but in the heavenlies as well. Every part of the creation of God has been affected by evil and is in enemy occupation. Now the point is here. And the book of Revelation, don't think of the book of Revelation just as a kind of haphazard series of judgments. It is a program whereby God retakes the universe. Where he takes his rights of possession. And he begins by opening the book. And so the book, I suggest to you, could be described as the title deeds of the cosmos. The title deeds of the universe. And when the Lord Jesus begins to open the book, he is setting in action a train of events that will culminate and God regaining everything that he lost and far more. Brothers and sisters, we believe that. We believe that one day our blessed Lord will open the book of government. And this world does not belong to superpowers. And does not belong to nuclear powers. And does not even belong to infernal powers. It belongs to Christ. And one day he is going to open the book. And he is going to loose the seals. And he is going to take possession of the universe for God. And so that's the book. And so John says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book. And the search now is on for someone who is worthy. Someone who is fit. John Phillips in his book says, if... The, the question, if the challenge had been, who is willing to take the book? He says there would have been a stampede. But because the question was, who is worthy? There's a silence. And I can imagine later on it speaks about a silence in heaven lasting half an hour. I imagine that as this challenge rings out, uh, Scripture says a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, there is no corner of the universe that does not hear this challenge. There's no, there's no pit of hell that doesn't hear the echoing challenge of the angel. Who is worthy? Who is going to step forward and reclaim the universe for God? And as the silence goes on, again John Philip says the silence is broken by a sob. And John says, I wept much. That's the same word 
You'll know there are two words for weeping in the Bible. You remember when the Lord Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus wept, and uh, that's the word for silent weeping. And the tears coursed down his face. But there is that occasion, you remember, when the Lord Jesus beheld the city and he wept over it. And it's the idea of weeping with loud lamentations. We, we, we can hardly uh, imagine the scene. The Lord is standing and, and it's as though he doesn't care who sees his grief. So moved is he with the sight of the city. And John is violating, I suggest to you, the tranquility of heaven with his wailing tears. Because John realizes that if nobody can open this book, then all God's purposes are in vain. Brothers and sisters, I'd like you to take the the bigger view tonight. We're so self-centered sometimes, and Christianity is not all about me. It's not about me at all. Um, But my Christian life is not all about me. God's plans, they do involve me by his grace, but they're not about me. They're not for me. You know, you were saved. People have difficulties with the truth of, of election and so on because they think somehow, well, that means I think I'm something special if God chose me. Dear friends, let's take the big picture. God is moving uh, to a master plan that will culminate in everything being recovered to him and, be, and God being all in all and Christ being everything. That's God's plan. And by his grace, you and I fit into it. But this is the master plan of the universe. This is, this, is the, uh, this is the trespass offering. You remember the trespass offering? That uh, if someone lost, uh, uh, if they lost uh, four sheep or five sheep, someone had stolen them, they had to recover the five sheep, and then they had to add another one. They had to give more. And we sometimes sing that in Christ, the sons of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Dear brother, dear sister, do you ever think, <laughs> we're not deep thinkers, are we really, but do you ever think the big thoughts, why was it all allowed to happen? Why was it that God allowed the serpent even to go into the Garden of Eden? What, why? You know, there are questions that are beyond us. But we understand this, that at the end of the day, God will have received greater glory than he lost through the fall of man. And so God is working to this aim. And John's weeping because there's no one. And listen to this. No man in heaven. Well, it's no one in heaven really. No one in heaven. You think of Michael. You think of Gabriel. You think of ranks of angels and archangels. Not one of them. Not one of them can do it. Uh, You think of no one on earth. You, You think of the great men and women of God. You think of Moses and Elijah. Of David, of Solomon. You, you think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You, you go through the, the greats of earth. Not one of them can, can, can take this scroll and open this book. And neither under the earth. There's no infernal power. There's no fallen angel can ever do this. And John weeps <coughs> much. And so it is that at this dramatic point, the whole, the whole future of the universe is hanging on the balance. And the question is this, is there anyone who is fit and worthy to reclaim the universe for God? Well, let's think about the worthy one, the one who is worthy. The elder says to John in verse 5, weep not. Dry your tears. Heaven is a place where tears will be dried. 
And I'm not sure, we, we have pictures, you know, about the judgment seat of Christ and, and about hanging our heads in shame and weeping tears and all that. I'm not quite sure if that's the case. Remember, John's not in heaven in a glorified state here. It's, it's uh, in the spirit and so on. But uh, heaven is a place where tears are dried. And the elder says, weep not. And he says, behold, and here we have it. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed, overcome to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. We're going to think now about the one who has the right to open the book. Well, John is told about the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, isn't this a wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus? And we go back, of course, to Genesis chapter 49. Old Jacob is on his deathbed. And he's telling his sons what will befall them in the last day. And he comes to Judah and he says, Judah, you are like a lion's whelp uh, from the prey. You're like a lion that's gone up from the prey. And, and you're like an old lion and who shall rouse you? And he describes Judah as being a king. The scepter will not depart from you. And the lawgiver and so on. And uh, he's looking down through the ages by the spirit. And he sees a time coming when a descendant of Judah will sit upon the throne and he will be lion-like in character. Brethren and sisters, this is the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, we know quite a bit about lions. But if we stick to what Scripture says, uh, you remember the, the writer of the Proverbs, right at the end, he speaks about three things that go well and four that are comely in going. And the first one, he says, a lion, that is strongest of the beasts, and that turns not aside for any. That means, dear brother, if you're on holiday in Africa or somewhere, and you happen to stumble along a path in the jungle, and you meet a lion, you'll have to get out of the way, <laughs> uh, because it's not going to move for you. It turns not aside for any. The idea of a lion is irresistible power. Power that cannot be argued with. Power that cannot be disputed. It will turn aside for no one. And it speaks of majesty and dignity. It's the king of the beasts. And our blessed Lord is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The interesting thing about it is that with all the references to the Lord we've been hearing about in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, there are many animals that are used to picture our Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, but you'll never find the lion used after that incident. The next time you find the lion referring directly to the Lord is this verse. So you go from the first book of the Bible right to the last book of the Bible before you get the application of the lion to the Lord. But you do get the lion applied to other people. You get the lion applied to evil powers. You get the lion applied to evil people. You get the line applied to Satan. Because you see, in the intervening period between the first book and the last book, it seems as though the power is all on the side of evil. The lions are all evil lions. And then you come to the end and discover that God has been saving this picture right to the, to the end. And John is told, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the root, or it can be the shoot of David. In other words, he has... He has the power of strength. He has the right of strength and power. And he has the legal right. He is the offspring of David. The one to whom was promised 
rule and dominion and it says he has prevailed somebody has said that as God Christ has the right to all by creation and as man everything is his by the right of conquest he has prevailed to open the book and so we have in our minds brothers and sisters this wonderful picture of our saviour John had never thought of him in this light before as the lion of the tribe of Judah majestic, dignified, strong powerful, unassailable dear brothers and sisters this is our blessed Lord this is the saviour and he will appear in this character when he takes control when he intervenes and he opens the book of government. But of course John looks and he doesn't see a lion at all. He sees a lamb. Verse 6. And so you can hardly get a, a greater contrast between the lion with, with the massive paws and the claws and the strength and just the massive head and the mane and, and it just exudes power and might and, and, uh, and ferocity. And then you see beside it a young lamb. You can hardly get a greater contrast. But the interesting thing is this, that for the rest of the book of Revelation, you'll never read of the Lord as a lion. Because, strange to say, the one who will rule the universe is lamb-like in character. You remember the Lord Jesus said that if you desire to be the highest, you've got to be the lowest. Um, there are many people in the history of the world who've used the lion as a symbol of their rule. Kings love to use the lion because they think that reflects on them. And so on their banners, on their medallions, on, their, on, their, uh, on the various signs they would use for their kingdom, the lion is there all the time. And uh, you think of a lion rampant. Uh, you think of our flags in the United Kingdom. And you think of England and uh, Scotland probably too. Um, lions are used by men because that's the symbol of power they want. I've never ever heard of a country or a despot or a ruler using a lamb. But that's God's ruler. And he sees a lamb. Let's take a look at this. This is something that John is more familiar with. Remember, he's the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God. And recorded John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. But he sees a lamb. Now, we're going to think about this just for a moment. And notice, please, that it's a lamb that is slain. A lamb as it had been slain. And so there is this wonderful picture of, and it is pictorial, but it is the one who gave himself in sacrifice. And we understand this, brothers and sisters, that the future of the universe is based on the cross of Christ. And future government for Christ is based on his sacrifice. And we're taught in the epistles that uh, the death of Christ has not only met my need, it has not only satisfied the claims of the throne of God, but it is the grounds on which the whole universe will be restored to God. And so he sees a lamb slain. But then you'll notice he sees a lamb standing. Now standing is the posture of resurrection. You remember uh, when uh, Mary was at the tomb, she turned and she sees Jesus standing. You remember in the upper room, uh, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Then came Jesus and stood. He's not lying now as he was in the tomb. His body's not lying. He's standing in resurrection life. Uh, you remember when the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore. You remember um, 
uh, as Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees Jesus standing. And so, this wonderful picture, a lamb slain, but a lamb standing in resurrection power. So we have the lamb slain, we have the lamb standing, we have the strong lamb with seven horns. This is a picture, of course, horns are used in the Bible as a picture of strength and power. And we have not only seven horns, but this lamb has seven eyes, and it's the seeing lamb. It's the Lamb who exercises all his power with complete and absolute knowledge and perception. And he comes. And I like to think of this. uh, The Bible is so dramatic at times, isn't it? He comes and he takes the book. And you can almost see the narrative has slowed down. So you can almost see the hand going out to take the book. And he Brothers and sisters is the one who has the right to take the book. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the freshly slain but living lamb with unlimited power and unlimited knowledge. And that is our saviour. Aren't you glad that the future government of the universe is in his hands? In his hands. We don't need to be worried about North Korea or Putin or even Trump. We are confident that the future of the universe is in his hands. Now, as I sit down, just very briefly, the 24 elders. Now, if you have a problem with this, see Sinclair at the end, because I think he believes the same as me. And uh, um, the 24 elders, I think we could demonstrate, although we're not going to do it tonight, that this perhaps is a picture of the redeemed company of the church. And I just want to draw your attention to three things about them. First of all, verse 5 one of the elders, somebody said to me, <laughs> when I spoke on this one, somebody said to me, how can you get 24th of a church? Well, you know, don't press every detail. But one of the elders says, they couldn't, all the 24 couldn't say it. One of the elders says to John, don't weep, because I know what's going to happen. Brothers and sisters, I just want to lift this simple uh, lesson. That when we are in heaven with Christ, And when we are associated with him, when he opens the book of government, we will know what's going on. We will have intelligence as to God's purposes and plans. Now we have that to some degree now, through the revelation itself, through what God has given us. But I suggest to you that when we are glorified, when we are in his presence, when we've been made like Christ, we will have knowledge as to what God is doing. And so the elder says... Listen, I know something you don't know yet, but I know that there is one who's worthy to open the book. And the elders are marked throughout the book of Revelation by intelligence. How's your intelligence these days? How's your IQ in a spiritual sense? How how spiritually intelligent are you? Well, one day we're going to have spiritual intelligence. We're going to know. And this is, this is the unfolding, just to set it in its context. This is the beginning of what we call the tribulation period. The, the church has been raptured, taken up into heaven. We're with Christ and we're going to have knowledge of what is happening, what God's purposes and plans are. And then secondly, I want you to notice please in verse 6 that when John sees the Lamb, he sees him in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders. If we read chapter 4, we would discover that there are 25 thrones in chapter 4. There is one throne, the throne of God. 
and then there are 24 thrones that are circling that throne. And the thought is this, that not only will we have intelligence as to what the Lamb is doing, that we will be associated, this is the, somebody has said, it is the council room of heaven. We are going to be governing with him. We're going to be judging with him. We're going to be linked with him. I remember someone saying, if you read the book of Revelation, we cannot help be horrified with the scale of destruction and judgment as God puts into uh, action his plan to recover the world. But his brother said that one day we will be able to derive as much comfort from God's government as we do presently from God's grace we're going to be like Christ and we're going to see things from the divine standpoint and we're going to be associated with him in his government finally just as I sit down verse 8 when he had taken the book when he had taken the book this is the this, this, this starts off uh, a great uh, psalm of praise in heaven when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials and so on, and they sung a new song. And so, not only intelligence as to what God is doing, not only associated with God and the government of the world, but in full appreciation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and these are kings and priests. They are worshipping the Lord. If you read chapter 4, you'll notice in chapter 5, they've got things in chapter 5 they didn't have in chapter 4. And that is, every one of them has a harp. And every one of them has a bow. And uh, the harp uh, speaks. You remember when David was the harpist and he brought the harp in. And you remember what the purpose of the harp was? I hope you know your biblical musical instruments in the Old Testament. And you remember that um, when the evil spirit was upon when the evil spirit was upon Saul, David was brought in to play the harp. Brothers and sisters, uh, the harp speaks of music that will calm the disturbed spirit, that will that will banish the evil spirit. And these elders have harps, and not only do they have harps, but they have bowls. Uh, and these bowls, we don't need to spiritualize this; they're full of the prayers of the saints. And so, what these elders are symbolizing is this. That they are involved in a ministry that although it is the day of vengeance and the day of judgment, it will herald in the calm of the eternal day. And they are involved with governments that will be the culmination of the prayers of the saints. You go back to the Psalms. And you remember that Psalm 72, David says... The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You know what he was praying for? He was praying for this day. And uh, he says, really, if I can see that fulfilled, I won't ask for anything else. And saints have prayed, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, down through the centuries. And they will pray, and in coming days, thy kingdom come. And these elders are associated with the coming in of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they fall down and they worship. We've no time to think about this. They sang a new song. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And the, 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 the circles of praise go out and out until they encompass everyone in the universe. Every corner of the universe is throbbing with praise to the lamb. And the four beasts 
I love this, they just say Amen. And then it's back to the 24 elders again, they fall down and they worship him that liveth forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, our Lord one day will take the book and will break the seals and will open the scroll and will set in train actions that will recover the universe for God. And when he does so, we're going to be there. And we're going to be there not just simply as spectators, we're going to be there as intelligent participants in the government of God and we're going to be there in a spirit of worship as we adore our blessed Lord and Saviour. The future is in his hands. And let me just bring this very practical, your future is in his hands. There are saints in conferences like this and you're worried about, not, you're not worried about the millennium, it's next month you're worried about. Well, the one who one day will hold the scroll in his hand, holds you in his hand. And uh, we can fall, as the 24 elders do, before him and worship him that liveth forever and ever. <clears throat> uh, we'd like to just give a heartfelt appreciation to the brethren for the ministry that they have provided us this afternoon. It's been a ministry which has been challenging and in many ways it's been uplifting. And it is with great happiness that we all go home knowing that the one who was slain is going to be the one in whose hand is all our lives. So we thank you brethren for taking the time to come here and speak to us. Now I'd just like to make a few announcements before we finish. As indicated earlier, there's a buffet available downstairs. We'd like you all to stay back and have and enjoy some fellowship with us. After the meeting is over, just uh, stay in your seats and when all the preparations are done downstairs. Also, these messages, all these messages have been recorded. They are available on the Holden website and it's also available on podcast through iTunes. So if you are going to iTunes and to podcast and search for Holden. And now we'll sing a hymn in closing and after that, Brother Douglas will come and uh, give thanks for the food and end the conference. We'll take time to sing the whole of number 46, hymn number 46. Father, we thy children bless thee for thy love on us bestowed. As our Father we address thee, called to be the sons of God. Wondrous was thy love in giving, Jesus for our sins to die. Wondrous was his grace in leaving, for our sakes his home on high. We'll take time to sing the whole of 46 and we'll stand after the introduction of the article.
today to give thanks for the Word of God. We've thought much today of the Scriptures uh, for the, uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, we give thanks to the one who is the living Word and the Word of God himself. And yet we've been reminded of his attitude to Scripture and we pray that these practical, valuable lessons may be uh, part of our lives and that we may have heard thy voice today speaking to us, that we may go away from the conference with a greater love for the Word of God, a greater desire to submit to it, and a greater understanding of it as we think of these great events that we've thought of and the, the culmination of everything. Uh, we give thanks that thou hast revealed it to us, and we pray for the Holy Spirit's help to enter into uh, the reality and the joy of these things. We've been singing of thy grace, we've been singing of thy love. We're only here today because of Calvary, and we bow to give thee thanks for the man of Calvary, 
for the blood that has made atonement, for the, the, the work that has been finished. And we praise thee one day. We are going to surround the throne as we've been singing. Every voice will shout salvation to our God and to the Lamb. And so until that day, help us to be faithful to him. Help us to be lovers of the word of God. And help us to walk in ways that please thee. We thank thee for our conference. We now give thanks too for the refreshments provided. We thank thee for every believer here. We pray that each one may receive a portion from thy hand as we give thanks in the Saviour's name. Amen. Now I have been advised that everything downstairs is ready, so we can make our way downstairs. Thank you.